0: The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Proclaim these things consistent with sound teaching. Older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible and sound in faith, love and endurance. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behaviour, not slanderers, not slaves to excessive drinking. They are to teach what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and love their children. To be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind and submission to their husbands so that God's word will not be slandered. In the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that any opponent will be ashamed because he does not have anything bad to say about us. Slaves are to submit to their masters in everything, and to be well-pleasing, not taking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness so that they may adorn the teaching of God our Saviour in everything. Well, if you want to
1: open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 1 to 10 this morning. And our passage that we're looking at today really follows on quite neatly from what we studied last week in in chapter one. If you were here last week, in chapter one, Paul uh, really went after a bunch of false teachers who had made their way into into the church um, on on this island called the island of Crete. Uh, And by their false teaching, they were, according to Paul, they were ruining entire households. He says. And then today in our passage, Paul teaches Titus, he tells them how to instruct the entire household of God, how to regain their identity and their commission as the people of God. It's almost as if Paul was saying in chapter 1, these people are ruining the church. And then in chapter 2, he says, this is how you be the church. Paul is going to give really specific instructions to men and women, young and old, and then just in case the, the household workers in the churches that um, were there who would have heard this, and just in case they thought they might have missed out there, Paul then addresses the slaves as well. There's not going to be anybody in this passage that is going to miss out. And, and when we think about it as plainly as that, we must realize that there is no Christian who is exempt from Paul's instructions in this chapter. Everyone here who is a believer needs to pay attention to this. So let's pray, let's commit this time To the Lord. Almighty, gracious Father, since our salvation depends upon understanding that we are sinners in need of grace and that you are the God of grace, you are the God who sent his Son to save us from our sins and to be our King. And we know this principally, Lord, through your word. We ask, Lord, that you would grant our hearts, that we would hear and understand now your word with all diligence and faith, so that we would be able to discern your will for us, Lord, that we would cherish your will, that we would live by your will with all eagerness. And We pray that uh, we would do this this morning, Lord, with all earnestness, with all praise, and with all honor to you, Lord, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. As a, as a parent, I get asked a lot of questions by my kids, and it's often, these questions often begin with, Dad, how big is the biggest, dot, 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 or how great is the greatest, or how deep is the deepest, and they kind of want to know the, the greatest things, the highest things, the, the largest things, the oldest things, and I'm really grateful in those times for Google that I can just reach into my pocket and Give, give off the answer. And there's times though when I can't Google it, I'm driving and the kids ask me a question and I just say, I don't know. And they say, Dad, you say all the time that you know everything. And I tell them, I do know everything. And then so they ask the question again and I say, I don't know and it goes around in circles. But I, they, they want to know what the greatest thing is, what's the, what the biggest thing is. Well, on the night before his execution, Jesus told his disciples about the greatest love that one could ever show to another person, he says in John fifteen thirteen. No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. Now, if you've been here at LCC for a while, you probably would have heard me talk about this at some stages. It's one of my favourite Bible verses. This this uh, this verse is really important because it's got a couple of really important words in it. The first word is this word for laying down, which is the Greek word, tithemi, which means to, to lay something down like a gift or a tribute in front, in front of some kind of uh, royal or important person, a dignitary kind of a person, to, to lay something down. And the other important word is the word for life. And there's a couple of options that Jesus could have chosen to, to use for this word life. He could have said, zoe. That someone lays down there is zoe, and zoe means um, your physical self, your physical life. So if you've got a problem with your physical life, um, you, with, your, with your zoe, you call an ambulance. But the word that uh, Jesus uses is this word suke, which gets transliterated as psyche, and it's where we get the word psychology from. And it's more so talking about ourself, our self, who we are, our, our, our identity, the, the, what makes us us, like our agenda, what we, what we desire. And so when Jesus says this, the greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends, it, it means a lot more than, you know, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be willing to die for you. Like, it, it certainly includes that at some stage, but it, it means more than that. Like, it has to mean more than that, right? Like, if you were to come to me and say, Jimmy, you know, as, as a brother in Christ, I love you so much, I would be willing to take a bullet for you. Uh, thank you. That's so nice of you, but I hope it never gets to that. And if that's the way you express your love for me, then we, I probably won't actually get to experience that. Or, Jimmy, I, I love you so much, I would jump in front of a bus for you. Like, Thank you. That's really, it's a bit dark, but how about we just hang out sometime? How about we do that? Like, um, <clears throat> see, see, when we're talking about the greatest love, it's not, it's not just that we'd be willing to die for another person, but we'd actually be willing to lay down who we are for another person. It's, it's, it's a shocking thing when we think about this. We'd be willing to lay down our life as a tribute for somebody else. In our world, the message is this. This is me. And you need to love me for who I am. You need to love me just as, uh, just as I am. Accept me just as I am. But Jesus cares for us far too much to be concerned with such shallow versions of love. As a pastor, it's crucial that I don't love you by accepting you for who you are, but to call each one of us to change and to grow and mature. It's it's our role as Christians to do that. This is the life of a Christian that we grow in our faith. We grow and mature as Christians. To, To truly love someone... It begins with wanting the best for another person. That's a really good place to start, but it goes beyond that. It, it, it goes through seeking the best for another person, like, like actively being part of whatever is good for another person, but then the biblical love goes beyond that and says true love is to actually be the best for another person, regardless of the personal cost. That is, I'm going to become just the best version Of myself, I'm going to grow and become more and more like Jesus. Not in some kind of way to, in some kind of attempt to receive the love of God, because I can't earn that. I can't polish myself up enough to earn God's love. That's a gracious gift of grace to me. But, but actually, I want to mature and grow in my faith as a means of loving my brothers and sisters around me. To actually becoming more mature as a believer. It's to to lay down your agenda and to grow and be the best we can be for the sake of another person, regardless of the personal cost. And the reason why I say all of that is because in this passage, Paul gives us this really high vision of the church. And as we read it, it might initially sound like these are kind of like the club rules for being part of the church. Like if you're going to a restaurant and it might say on the front, like, you know, the the. What's, re- what's required for the clothing that you wear, You know, no thongs and singlets you've got to put on a shirt or whatever There's certain requirements. It, it kind of sounds like this is that list, like this is what is required for, for you to be part of the church, but it's actually not. That's not the case at all. Rather, what, what Paul talks about here is that this is the trajectory of grace. Then when we know the, the loving kindness of God and sending His Son for us to die for our sins, this is the, the trajectory that we get set on. Because we have seen God's unconditional love for us displayed in Jesus Christ, we are freed up to love one another in the same way that he loved us. And the reason why we know that this is a grace trajectory is because of what Paul says after these 10 verses in verse 11, which we're going to spend a bit more time in next week. But in verse 11 he says, "...for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people." And that word, for, means, here's why. Why? Paul's going to give this list of all these things that are. it seems like it's required of you to be in the church, but he's saying this is actually the trajectory. Here's why. Because the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And he goes deeper in verse 14. He says, speaking of Jesus, he says, he gave himself for us. He gave himself for us. He, he laid down his life truly. <clears throat> This means that everything that he's about to say here is framed by the grace of Jesus. If we're to read this, the instructions to older men, older women, younger men, younger women, if we read this and we start thinking to ourselves, oh great, more work to do. More things to feel guilty about. More reminders of how much of a failure I have been. Then we're we're not reading it right when we plant the grace of Jesus Christ and given himself for us deep inside of our hearts, this kind of loving, maturing, gracious trajectory is surely going to follow. We need the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and we need the Holy Spirit to teach us this as we go. So so how does a community of faith, how does a, a church begin to love one another in the way that we're called to? Well, it flows from a healthy understanding of who God is as we know of him through his word. Paul says in verse 1, Titus chapter 2, verse 1, But you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. Now, that word sound, we heard that word sound last week. It means healthy, and we're going to hear it mentioned at least two more times. It's a really important word, and the principle is this. Last week, uh, Paul talked about healthy doctrine and healthy faith, and the, the principle is this. Healthy doctrine leads to healthy Christians, and unhealthy doctrine leads to unhealthy Christians. For Titus, the direction and the care of this church must line up with and be a product of the teaching of the gospel of God and God's word. He, Titus can have no hope that this could be a church that is healthy in any way unless he teaches what is consistent with sound teaching, unless he, he brings the gospel to bear upon people's lives. And not only that, if you jump down to verse 8, Paul says, your message is to be sound beyond reproach. So not, not just sound, but like healthy beyond reproach, so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. Titus needs to be so clear about the grace of God and his teaching that those who try to destroy the gospel by adding conditions onto the gospel, saying you need to do all this other stuff to be saved, they will be ashamed. This is what was going on for Titus. There were people in the church there who were saying, faith in Christ isn't enough. You also need to observe the Jewish law. And, and what we said last week is, if you try and add anything to that, If you try and add anything to grace, if you try and make it easier for God to save you, try and just like carry some of the weight, you're not making it easier. You're actually undermining the grace of Jesus. The the good works that uh, we are called to obey God in are a result, they are a product of the grace in our lives. We, we We obey because of God's unceasing love for us. This is why we want to remind one another every Sunday of the grace of Jesus Christ. It's why we choose songs that focus on the grace of Jesus Christ, focus on the gospel. It's why we, we, we prayed that prayer of confession before and heard the, the wonderful assurance of the grace of Jesus Christ, that, that we have been forgiven for our sins. See, see, none of us here have, have any reason in or of ourselves to expect that God would ever forgive us or, or draw near to us. None, none of us have done anything that would, would make God draw near. Yet this is precisely who God is. He wants us. He wants to redeem us from our sin because that brings Him glory. He loves us, he desires us, he cherishes us, and he wants to have that relationship with us. He wants us to know him, he wants us to be in close proximity with him, that we would not just uh, pray to him as some distant God, that we've kind of got to lob our prayers over a whole lot of other people to get there, but actually we speak to him as if he is close by, standing face to face. And so he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to rack up the perfect human record of righteousness. Jesus lived in perfect obedience to every one of God's divine commands. And then when the time was right, he allowed himself to be killed by his own people. And although it was a physical death, it had cosmic ramifications. It was a death on behalf of everyone else to pay for their sins. And if we open our hearts to God and we ask God to forgive us of our sins, guess what? You will be forgiven. For the sins on Saturday, for the sins on Friday, for the sins on Thursday, for the sins on Wednesday, for the sins tomorrow, for the sins the next day. You will be forgiven. The full record of the insurmountable debt of the entire sum of our sin will be paid for by Jesus and his perfect record that he wrapped up will be credited to us, to our account. And, and something happens when that becomes true of us, when we put our faith in Jesus, something happens, we become in him, in Jesus Christ. That, that when, when, when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of God and he declares us to be righteous whatever Jesus has earned he has earned on our behalf we get to experience eternal life in heaven with Jesus face to face perfectly and surely ours and this makes Jesus our king that Jesus is our ruler that Jesus is, is our Lord. A Christian is someone who, who doesn't say, Jesus is my saviour, but I'm in charge. A Christian is someone who says, Jesus is my saviour and my Lord. I obey him. I obey what his word tells me to do. And because of what Jesus Christ has done, those who trust him are slowly and often very stubbornly being removed from the, being the centre of the universe because their lovely King Jesus is now on the throne. And when Jesus is on the throne of your life, you care less and less about yourself and you care more and more about others because that's exactly where our king directs our focus, to the needs of others. The reality for for someone who brings their heart nearer and nearer to the grace of God is that they they will eagerly and be wholeheartedly devoted to being a blessing to others. It won't be a grudge to them, and the cost will barely bother them. This is what we should expect of God's grace in our lives. And this is what the next nine verses or so play out. Paul is going to show us how this works for individuals in the community of faith. So coming back to verse 2, Paul lays out these instructions for specific demographics within the church. He first of all talks to older men, then he talks to older women, then he talks to younger women, then he talks to... Younger men. And just in case I say something like older men or older women and I make eye contact with you, that's not me saying that you're old, okay? Just in case, like, he looked at me when he said older woman. He looked at me when he said older man. He's younger, he's older than I am. Like, I'm not, okay, I'm just spreading my eye contact with everybody. And and since these instructions are broadly for everyone here, there isn't anyone here or even a, a single Christian on earth who is exempt from this, who doesn't have something that we need to obey in this. This passage absolutely eliminates any notion that our faith is a solo project. Here's the thing. If you're a Christian and you're not meaningfully part of a church, then I don't know how you obey this text. I don't know how you can actually obey God's word if you're not part of a of a regular gathering body of believers. Paul's words here abolish the suggestion that being part of a church is optional. We are commanded to gather regularly with the same group of believers to glorify God and encourage one another in the faith. And this passage lays out how we can do this. Going older men, younger, older women, younger women, younger men. So let's talk first to the old fellas. Paul says, Older men, are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible and sound in faith, love and endurance. These words together paint the picture of a man who isn't fickle, he isn't rash, he isn't impulsive, but measured and careful in every way. And the fact that he is worthy of respect, it has a very strong but maybe not so obvious implication it implies that such a man is living in such close proximity to others that the grace of God can be seen at work in his life. He, he's not distant, but he's close. He's worthy of respect. They see his life and they respect him. How does this happen? Paul says it's through being sound. That's, there's that word again, healthy in faith, in love and endurance. Healthy doctrine has led him to health in his faith, that is, in his relationship with God. Healthy doctrine has led uh, to health in his love, in his love for others, that's a relationship to others. And it's also led to health in endurance, it's steadfastness for the sake of those around him, of those relationships. Older men are to have the grace of God so close to their hearts that they are consistent in showing up, not, not just as an example of the faith, but also in faithful love for other believers. Let me, let me say it like this to, to the older men in our church. Keep working at your faith. It is a blessing to the community when you do so. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for the older men in our church who pray for us, who are devoted to us, who pray for me in particular. Can I say on behalf of everybody else here, we are grateful to you. We are grateful for your sacrifice. We, we covet your prayers. We cherish your example. Keep going in the faith. We need you to keep going in the faith. Keep your heart close to Jesus. Your faith in Christ is so important to us. And just quickly, if I can say this to the younger men in the church, we are blessed with incredible wisdom here in our church, quality wisdom in the older men in our church. Take advantage of them. Make use of them. Take them out for coffee. Have them over for dinner. Invite them into your life. If you're facing challenges with your work or with your boss or uh, in your marriage or in financial areas, anything like that, chances are one of the older men in our church has walked that path before and can just send some wisdom can give you some wisdom for that. Invite them into your life and glean from their wisdom. In verse 3, Paul then turns to the older women. He says, In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behaviour, not slanderers, not slaves to excessive drinking. They are to teach what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, Kind and in submission to their husbands, so that God's word will not be slandered. Now, since halfway there, Paul flicks from talking to older women to younger women, um, we're going to treat those in two separate categories. Um, To the older women, first, Paul says, Paul uses this word reverent. They have to be reverent in behavior. And this word reverent isn't used. Anywhere else in the Bible, it, it, it means it, it refers to um, what they would uh, the, the title they would give to a priestess in an ancient temple. To be reverent in behavior, to be to be reverent in their entire lives. Then it's kind of like saying that you can tell that that these women are close with God. That the, the aroma of God's grace follows them around. Their life boasts a nearness to God. Wonderful thing to aspire to. Wonderful thing. These women do not slander. They don't tear down others with their words, whether it's to their face or behind their backs. And as servants of God, they're not slaves to excessive drinking. Their lives are given over to building others up with their words and being an example in their behavior, as an example in their faith. They know the reality of community, which is that the younger women are looking up to them and are looking to them uh, as students do to their teacher. And so they teach what is good. And can I say to the old women in our church, how grateful we are for you in this church. We cherish the way that you model the faith over over the long haul. And we want you to know that we see you. We admire you. We are thankful for all that you do for us. And we need you to keep praying those faith-filled, long-term prayers for us and for our church. We need you to continue modeling godliness in womanhood, in motherhood, and as wives in the way that you treat those around you. Can I say this to the young women now? Don't pass up this opportunity to have wiser servants of God speak into your life. Sometimes you need an uplifting and encouraging word and other times you need to hear some hard truth. But know that these hard truths are priceless gems that have been mined in difficult terrain. Ask them questions. Hear how they persevered. And if they have a hard word for you, hear it. Listen in. Paul directs his teaching then to the younger women in the church. Following on, Uh, From his exhortation to all the women, Paul says that the young women are to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind, and in submission to their husbands, so that God's word will not be slandered. Now just in case you're wondering, if you're new here, we didn't pick this passage because it's Mother's Day, it's just what we were up to. And one of our values as a church is that we preach through books of the Bible. We want to preach exegetically and just take God's word as it comes. And so it means you come across passages like this where there are some modern hurdles for us. Like, is anybody else as nervous as I am about this? Like, what this is about to say? It's, we've got to do a bit of work here. Firstly, even though four of the seven instructions pertain to women who are married with these kids, this doesn't at all mean that being married with children is a requirement for godliness. Let's just make that clear. It is not a requirement for godliness. He's simply talking about those who are married and those who do have kids. In accordance with sound teaching, young women are to love their husbands and their children. Now this seems like a bit of a no-brainer to us However, in a culture where arranged and formal marriages were the norm, this is an instruction to let their love for others, their love for their husband and their love for their children to be a testimony to the love of God that they have received through Jesus Christ. Paul also states that women are to be workers at home. And it seems that when he's talking about that, he's speaking against being busy elsewhere when critical, where critical duties of motherhood have been abandoned. I don't think that this prohibits women from having careers at all, but rather if she does have children, that her home should, should receive the lion's share of her care and attention because this is the life that God has given to her. I also believe, I also think that this isn't a duty only for the wife, but the Bible teaches us elsewhere that for husbands and fathers, their first priority also should always be their families. It should not be career first. But this chafes against our culture, which increasingly despises a domestic life and insists that the highest kind of fulfilment in life is only possible through having a career. The Bible is not intent on tearing down our identity and sense of self-worth. In actual fact, the Bible is intent on establishing our identity and establishing our self-worth in the right soil, which is the gospel of God. And we can see this again in verse 11. We're going to look in more detail at verses 11 to 15 next week. But Paul says there that the grace of God has appeared. In the person of Jesus Christ, bringing salvation for all people. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to create for himself a people for his own possession. This is where our identity, this is where our sense of self-worth comes from. You belong to God. You belong to God and that's because God sent the Son to appear to us in grace and to bring salvation at the cost of his own life, to redeem us from our old lives and to make us fully and finally his. If that truth is locked inside of your heart, if you lock that inside of your heart, if that's the soil out of which your identity and your sense of self-worth grows, then Paul's words, they won't be a burden to you. They won't be offensive to you. They will simply Point us towards the flourishing that God desires for us. Additionally, Paul says that these wives are to submit to their husbands. This again can seem like an ugly turn of phrase. But if you look where else that Paul where else Paul talks about this in greater length, in greater detail, in Ephesians 5. He's requiring wives to submit to their husbands who will love their wife by giving up their lives for them through a commitment to her discipleship to Jesus. To submit is, to not, is not to suppress your intelligence, is not to suppress your, uh, your gifts or your talents in the home or your passions, but to utilize them and to support her husband's spiritual leadership in the home. She is to use what God has given her to encourage her husband's love and agenda of seeing her become more like Jesus. Now that there is a can of worms that I've just kind of cracked the lid on there. If you are confused about that and you want to chat more, um, let's catch up. Let's talk about that. But can you see in this that Paul is making a massive case for the household, for the role of the family in building the church up And he's showing that a critical part of that plan is a wife and a mother who plays that role, as a woman who plays that role in the household of God. This is a beautiful thing that is so easily misunderstood and twisted in our culture. The picture that Paul paints here is of a a woman who has clear eyes and can see the eternal reality of the things of God in her life. Because of her proximity to Jesus, she's not overtaken and uh, overcome with the impulses and pressures of this world, but she expresses her faith through purity, through kindness, and through self-control. Moving now to young men. Paul gives this instruction, and he positions Titus himself as a central example of what was expected of the young men in the church. Essentially, they are to be the antithesis of the corrupt false teaching that had risen up in this church. That their lives needed to provide a strong defense against those who opposed the gospel. Paul says, in the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Now here's that word again, self-control. We saw it mentioned for the older men, for, uh, for, for women as well, and now here for younger men. Again, self-control, it's that lucid and clarity of thought which plays such an important part in the role of the church because it, it presses against those who would rebel against the gospel. The, the good works that were being promoted by this group, they aimed to bypass the grace of Jesus Christ. These, these good works, they were saying you need to be circumcised, you need to do all this extra stuff because that will get God off your back. Don't worry about grace, just, just obey and do these things and then you'll be a, a perfect specimen for God. But this doesn't work. Our attempts at holiness without grace are nothing compared to to the power of the gospel at work in our hearts. When the grace of God enters our hearts, we we soon learn that there is no limit to the kind of works that God has created us to obey in. This This has been my experience that there are some things now that I am, I'm fighting against, sinful things in my life, sinful things in my heart that I, I believe that God has raised now to say, hey, this is something that needs to be dealt with in your life. But, but I was oblivious to that 10 years ago. And if you had said, that's a sinful issue, I would have said, no, it's not, it's totally fine. But now I'm looking at my heart and I'm going, actually, no, this, this is right. And, and I'm not, we don't do that to earn that which is unearnable. We do that because of the grace of God in our life. Like, If you want to obey Jesus, put the grace of God into your life. Remember that you are a sinner that has been saved by by the work of Jesus Christ. That that he has forgiven us of your sins, that you've been washed clean, cleansed of that. Let let your heart marinate in that. And the kind of obedience that will be produced from that will far exceed, far surpass any efforts of our own without the grace of God. He's saying, young men, in, in opposition to these false teachers who deceive, who lie, and reject the truth, the young men, they need to have integrity, he says. Stand against the destructive power of deception. Not with fighting words, but with words of integrity. Stand against deception by being people who love truth and who do not deceive anyone at any time. These false teachers that had entered the church, Paul says in chapter 1 that they were corrupt. They were ruining entire households by their teaching if they thought they could benefit from it. If they thought, oh, there's something to be gained here. I I can get a bit of a foothold here. I can get my agenda. My, My agenda can get some momentum here in this church. So if I can just bring this in, I don't care if it ruins people's lives. At least I'm getting my way. Paul says to young men, be men of integrity. Act with incorruptibility. Such people are not sold out to cheap imitations of religion or shortcuts around grace. So to the young men and young women in this church, the potency of grace raises the stakes for what community and fellowship means. We must know that when we come together in close proximity to glorify God and to encourage one another in the faith, we need to know that every single decision that we make, every action that we take, it does affect those around us. It does affect those around us. We need to let our decisions and the way we speak to one another be flooded with the grace of Jesus Christ. This is one of the gifts of being part of the community of God. That I don't know how old the youngest person in our church is. I don't know how old the, the oldest person in our church is, but I'm pretty sure there's a pretty massive gap here. And guess what? You're in the same family of God. You're in the same family of God. One of the things that we do with our life groups is that we don't organise our life groups according to demographics but geographics as much as we can. That is, we don't have a, a, a young adult's life group and then a senior's life group and then a, um, you know, then a, like, this person's life group and then a that person's life group and young families and singles and then people who like the colour blue and then people who hate the colour blue and we divide everybody up into these different things. But rather, we, we, we know that the, the love of Christ for us brings us together in a community, which means we can learn from one another and, and grow from one another. One of my favorite things, um one of my favorite memories of our church is in life group a couple of years ago, um Lee was part of our life group. And she would come and she would go straight to the kids' playroom and start playing Lego with my son Danjo, who was about three at the time. And I was like, this is great. And it was totally normal for my son Dan. He was like, "Yeah, sweet. This is, this is what this is what we do. This is right. This is like we we want our our church to be. Uh, we want the relationships to not just stay with the, with people who look like you and agree with you, and, and stay in the same kind of realm of age and demographic, but actually to, to be to mix yourselves with with other people of other ages." Finally, Paul addresses those who he calls slaves. Now, we've got to be careful here, because slavery as it existed back then is entirely different to modern slavery as we know it now. It wasn't a racial thing where people were enslaved because of their race or because of the colour of their skin. In Paul's day, to be a slave, you could also be an apprentice in there or some kind of indentured relationship. A domestic worker and even someone who held a high government office could still be considered as a slave. However, we've got to be careful not to oversimplify it too much to suggest that a slave was like any other employed person now. There are some similarities, but they're not perfectly equivalent. A slave was, still in some measure, under the control of their master, someone who they owed a debt to. And Paul says... Slaves are to submit to their masters in everything and to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness so that they may adorn the teaching of God our Saviour in everything. And I love that phrase, adorning the teaching of God our Saviour in everything. That we, we hear the teaching of God, we read God's word, and we want to adorn that teaching with our behaviour, with our actions. We want, to, we want to go look at the grace of God and look at how it has done its work in our life. Paul is saying that grace needs to permeate through their work. His or her low position is not an excuse or a reason to try and enact their own justice or their own comeuppance by undermining their master or by taking what is not theirs. In contrast, their behaviour should be purposed to adorn the teaching of God our Saviour. Now, considering that slavery is not something that we necessarily have a close proximity with in our culture here, may I suggest to you that a person who who would have had more of an excuse than anyone to not obey Paul's teaching here would have been a slave. And if if that's the case, where does that leave us in obedience to God's word? See, here's the thing. We, We might look at this... We might have heard the instructions to young men, young women, older men, older women, and go, Yeah, but you don't know how hard that is for me. You don't know the obstacles that I've had. You, you don't know how significant that is for me, or you don't know how much I failed in that already. And you're right. I don't know that. But God's word is clear that not even slavery was a force that could stand against, the, against God's loving kindness and grace in our lives. See, if you look at this, and like me, you're confronted with how far you fall short of these things. Can you join me in coming to Jesus and and telling this to Jesus? Can we remember that Jesus requires nothing of us to be saved and that our salvation from all of our sins is because of him? Can we just know that the path ahead for us as we grow as disciples in this church is something that if we trust in Jesus, we'll be a product of his grace and our obedience, our obedience to his grace. If we can put, like just continually, to bring, continually bring the loving kindness of Jesus Christ close to our hearts, if we can draw near to him, Remembering the gospel. Remembering the glory of God in the gospel. That he owes us nothing and yet gave us everything in his son. That that our sin did not scare him off. That he doesn't go, ugh, at our sin, but he draws close to us. He drew close to us in his son, Jesus, by becoming a man, taking flesh, human flesh, unto himself. And he died the death that we deserve so that he could give us the life that he lived. And now when we stand before God, when we are in him, we stand as those who have, been, who have received the righteousness of God, who have been made righteous by the gospel, that God looks at us and he declares us to be righteous. That in the great courtroom of, of, of eternity, God looks at us and says, not guilty. Keep that in your heart. Keep that in your heart. And the grace of Jesus Christ will set us on trajectories that we will praise him for. Let's let's pray now. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church,
0: located on the Sunshine Coast.
1: We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples and communities
0: that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au.